0: Welcome to this episode of the Pokes Podcast through OSU's College of Arts and Sciences. I'm Natalie Ambrose. Our guest today is Tyler Bunch, a former OSU student who studied theater and went on to become a successful puppetry and voiceover artist. During our conversation, we chatted about his time at OSU, his fascinating transition into the craft of puppetry, and the top-notch work he has produced for companies like the Jim Henson Group, PBS Kids, Pokemon, and Sesame Street. In addition to voiceover work and puppetry, Tyler works consistently as a producer, director, writer, and actor. Tyler Bunch, welcome to the podcast today.
1: I guess we're done. You listed all of it. Uh, it was really okay. fun being here. Good to meet you. And uh, all right, this will see. See you later. Okay. Thank um, you. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was that was that was pretty glowing. Uh, glad to be here. Thank you so much for that uh, awesome introduction. And uh, yeah, I've been a very lucky dude. Very lucky.
0: You have. You have. So I would like to start out our conversation giving our listeners a little bit of context so they can understand where you came from, um, which always helps us understand where you are now. So tell us a little bit about your background before your time at OSU.
1: My father started his uh, undergraduate degree at Northeastern State in Tahlequah, which is where I was born. My father pursued a career in education, specifically collegiate-level theater arts education, And because of him finishing his schooling and trying to find jobs with tenure and trying to find jobs when the market wasn't so great in education, uh, just uh, regular jobs to kind of keep a roof over our head. We moved around a lot between the ages of zero and uh, 12. I think I moved 17 times. Wow. Um, Always the new kid. Uh, And then the last Kind of major move was when, when my folks decided that uh, it would be better if, if they separated. Um, we were in Louisiana at that time. My mother moved back to Tulsa where I wound up uh, being for my entire high school career and being Oklahoma at that time, which is how I jumped into to go going a, to a state school. Was going to be a zoologist from the time I could talk and walk. Um, loved animals, loved watching them drawing them, taking their pictures, figuring out what they'd like to eat, all that stuff. Uh, But the time of my parents' divorce, up to that time, spending time with dad was being at his side at work because as all teachers will tell you, it's an all-encompassing lifestyle. You're at work even when you're not at work. And especially with the theater, there's so many extracurriculars outside of the actual teaching itself that he was always the tech director at any university and designing and building sets. And then, you know, part of rehearsals when he wanted to direct. So if I wanted to spend time with dad, I had to be at the the university theater. So either summer theater camps or helping him build sets in the scene shop or being the kid they needed in the play. Um, (laughs) So when I wound up at Edison myself, still – with science as a goal, uh, I found the place I was most at home was theater class. And slowly over my high school career, I changed path uh, from from science to arts. What an idiot.
0: Is that a uh, a point of no return for you? There's no looking back after that. <laughs> what have you done? <laughs> right.
1: It's really more a matter of, you know, kind of hedging your bets. There's sort of lofty notion of pursue your dreams and then there's also the notion of but make sure you can eat while you do it um
0: exactly
1: and so pursuing the arts in any way shape or form is uh you know gumption and ability and almost the same percentage of luck um just being in the right place at the right time and it's just a matter of the levels of the luck as to to what leads to the next uh bit of good fortune so it was probably not the most stress free choice <laughs> to to enter the arts but i mean who can really say that their career doesn't give them stress
0: exactly so, anything so. worth pursuing is worth juggling a bit of stress
1: there you go yeah i really got into theater class and and used that to to spur an entry into uh, school politics at, at Edison, you know, getting into the superlatives and vice president of my senior class and stuff like that. So, gave me the interpersonal confidence to, to go ahead and, and give a shot at seeing if I can make a career of it.
0: That is so interesting to know that you had actually tested out the idea of zoology before you landed on theater. Most people would think that those are two complete polar opposite degree areas and yet now knowing that you are a puppeteer and puppets often are in the form those characters are often non-human characters True. that idea still like that fascination probably still rests with you a little bit but you're able to use it in a different way that's very cool to think about
1: that's an interesting connection and one i one i hadn't necessarily heard verbalized but it makes sense because one of the the things that interested me the most about the animal world was the differences in behavior and where animals live what they ate you know their literal um life from beginning to end as to how they were differentiated in the whole landscape of zoology so yeah it's interesting that you say it that way because one of the things i i guess i do try to do consistently is in the typical acting choices of of justifying a character's existence and why they're in the scene and what their quirks are. I I have relied a few times on my knowledge of, or at least my awareness of animal behavior and how it could uh, affect the the silly things I do when I play with dolls.
0: I love that. (laughs) I love how um, off the cuff you describe what you do. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me a little bit about your time at OSU, uh, specifically as a theater major, maybe something that stands out, what you remember most vividly, skills that you learned there that maybe you still use, things like that.
1: The thing I carried away was the notion that pursuing your art is inevitably tied to burning the candle at both ends. I was fortunate enough to, uh, once I chose Oklahoma State University because it had a graduate level program. I wanted to risk as little as possible being a big fish in a little pond. I wanted to go somewhere where I could feel that if if I were in an acting class there were people there that, that were going to push me if, if there were uh, theater roles available for productions that were being done I wanted to be able to say that I had a good amount of competition. If I was fortunate enough to be cast in those roles, I I wanted to to get as much exposure to as many different ideologies about the art form that I was deciding to go into as possible. So Oklahoma State was generous enough to give me a small scholarship from the theater department, which one of the requirements was uh, I had to take certain courses. I had to audition for every main stage or minor stage production, and I had to accept any roles offered. Those were the, the basic <laughs> rules of my scholarship. I did not realize how much that was going to kick my butt. Because <laughs> when you take introductory theater classes, you you're, have certain requirements outside of the class as well that have to do with the productions. So uh, if I'm taking... Uh, intro the the first scene shop course which was a freshman required level course you have to work backstage at least one show I was cast in all three shows that semester so there was one show that I was in where I had a very small role but I was the costume master for the show which meant I was showing up early uh, pulling stuff out that had been in the washing machine and fluffing and iron and make sure everybody's costumes were ready then getting my costume on then going and doing my part in the show then going in costume to the rail and working the main curtain because it was my job to work the main curtain, which I actually messed up once. And I actually took what's called the electric, the thing that holds the lights to the front row. Yes. Open to the second act. I had crank, crank, crank. It's like, it's still so dark. Why is it dark? I look up and I had taken the lights all the way to the loft of the ceiling, 30 feet out of position. And I had to crap. And I, and I, You know, quick, open the main curtain and they're in the middle of acting, mostly the grad students in the middle of of Arms and the Man was the production, George, uh, was Shaw play. I'm trying to sneak the first electric back in slowly over the course of the of that. Opening scene of the second act. So they're on stage, you know, in the living room, lounging on an ottoman and having their very highfalutin conversation. And this UFO is slowly descending over their heads, which the audience can't see because it's behind the apron. But the lights are just like slowly going in. You can see them glancing up. Everyone's like, what the hell is going on? And I finally got out of the back into position. <laughs> I won't say it's anybody but my fault I was a little with the schoolwork and the rehearsals and the rehearsals for acting class and being the tech for production as well as being in the production and it it means I didn't really sleep again when you want to be an artist your your full-time job is pursuing an art you know pursuing your art and you might also just have to have happen to have a full-time job to support that pursuit. It's like working two full-time jobs until you're fortunate enough that the art actually pays you a living wage. The first years of most people's pursuits is just about that exhausting. So learning how to manage that kind of energy output was, was helpful. Yes. It may not have been the intention, but it certainly was helpful.
0: I love hearing live theater stories. I have two degrees in theater myself, Oh, nice. And I, uh, in undergrad, was trained as both performance and designer. So I understand two sides of the same brain working at the same time under the lights and then also before and after rehearsals in the show. So I love hearing stories like that because you truly have to fix it in real time and pretend like it was completely normal. That was <laughs> fine. Everything is fine. This is fine.
1: <laughs> Meant to happen.
0: Tyler, what I hear you saying, and this is something that many of our listeners will probably resonate with, is that an artistic approach is immersive in its own nature. And so that's part of our research. We do our art, and that is research. And um, we take what works and we keep doing it, and we learn from what didn't work so that we can recognize what we can maybe sustain. So some of our students who are listening or even our professionals will be hearing some of those things through your career. And so I want them to maybe learn a little bit from your own experience through laughter and through trial and error in maybe a a laboratory setting as well. I really appreciate you being so open about your experience uh, at OSU and especially that you were juggling so much during that time. That matters a lot because, like you said, it's a setup for what the early years of your career were. Tell me a little bit about your time after you left OSU and what it was like juggling projects and kind of getting started in your industry.
1: My immediate departure from OSU was more financial choice than anything. Uh, My father had finally landed after getting his doctorate in directing from the University of Florida in Gainesville. My father, Dr. Thomas Edward Bunch was a tenured or on his way to being so professor at Eckerd College in St. Petersburg, Florida. And one of the perks of being on the faculty there was that his progeny did not have to pay tuition. So both my sister and I, I I finished, she completed her collegiate career at Eckerd College, uh, you know, with with no student debt to speak of, which hardly anybody can say that. A
0: huge accomplishment. yeah,
1: Yeah. So sort of took one semester off uh, between Oklahoma State and and going to Eckerd by doing Disney's college program, which I auditioned for at OSU totally assumed that I was going to be in the character strand and putting on goofy and walking around and entertaining people, but wound up pushing buttons on the ride body wars, which is if anybody's been to the parks, it's a simulator ride that doesn't exist anymore, but it's like the star tours they have now where you get shrunk down and injected into the human body and you're going through veins and, and oh
0: my goodness.
1: very silly thing. But um, that was an amazing experience in and of itself, because when you work and play for Disney uh, on the college program, At that time, you were in a condominium complex called Vista Way. And Vista Way not only housed all of the various and asundry collegiate age kids who were in similar positions, what they called the face jobs at Disney, cashiers and people who check you in at the hotel and people who are serving you food. Also for Disney World's Epcot Center, the the World Showcase, with uh, the small sort of uh, station examples of of different uh, cultural I guess you'd say colors and architecture and certain things about different countries. All the folks who worked in the face jobs in those countries were also from those countries. So I had mates from China, West Germany, France, Italy, uh, went to parties with the Norwegians, uh, hung out with some kids from New York. It was an amazing social experience. And I, you know, actually got that opportunity through Oklahoma State auditioning there and then tried to transfer those credits to to Eckerd. So fell into puppeteering while in, in Eckerd, a friend of the family had seen an ad in the paper and in my pursuits as an actor, I had sometimes relied on puppetry to kind of help me with things. There was a role that I was playing in an original play at Eckerd uh, where the character was supposed to be talking to an imaginary dog. And I was having a difficult time connecting with the author Kevin Kling's notion that uh, it was an imaginary dog and it was just there in space. And when he played fetch, I wanted to actually have a thing come that I had to throw. So I decided to make make it look like this character made a dog out of his own socks. And so the dog was there, and when he would play fetch, he would literally go get it and bring it back to him. And, you know. But that was more, it was almost a crutch. Like I was having a difficult time connecting with what the author wanted. So I said, well, what if I do this on my own thing and I can make more comedy out of it? And this friend of the family who had watched me do that kind of stuff was like, hey, I saw this. It was a guy who had worked as a local hire for the Jim Henson Company when they had been doing their first uh, contractual obligations for the franchise cooperative efforts. At Disney World. So the Muppets at Disney World, they needed a lot of extra folks. And this gentleman who had been a church puppeteer in the Tampa Bay area, building puppets and making his own shows his whole life, got on the list and went and learned this whole new world of what's called monitor puppetry. And what that basically means is whenever we are doing what we're doing with this inanimate object, be it Uh, A marionette, uh, what we call an arm and rod puppet, which is what most uh, Muppet style puppets are. Your hand is in the mouth, arm, uh, rod. It has rods for the hands like the black rods everybody makes fun of being on Kermit and Piggy. (laughs) Manipulating those objects uh, within the frame, being cognitive of the audience's point of view, because we are making things that don't actually have eyes, can't actually breathe, carry across the illusion of those things. It's kind of proscenium dependent. It's kind of dependent upon the point of view of the audience to truly make that fantasy a reality. In order to to create the illusion specific to the audience's point of view, we kind of have to see it. So whenever we're doing what we're doing to manipulate those things the right way within that frame, within the audience's point of view, we're also looking at that same thing on a television monitor usually just out of sight, which is why I keep looking down so we keep our heads down. Uh, And we're manipulating the objects while looking at ourselves on this TV so that we are doing it appropriate to the specific point of view that the audience is going to absorb the material. So monitor, television monitor puppetry was a whole new thing to this guy. He went home and practiced by himself and then realized he wasn't going to get anywhere unless he found people to play with, so he put the ad in the paper. I don't want money. I can't pay money, but I want to teach people how to do this in the hopes that maybe something will come of it. And this friend of the family is like, you like puppets, right? And shoved it under my nose. And I I went, and it was really cool. A bunch of people showed up. There's like 20, maybe almost 30 people the first night. Wow. Around 20 the next week. The next week, there's maybe eight. And then about four or five weeks in, there were four of us. Technically five, because Todd, the guy, Todd Coyle, was the one who was doing it. And we liked it so much. He was like, let's do this twice a week. So we would just literally practice the art of manipulating within the frame and lip-syncing to songs with the puppet and coming up with little sketches to do and miming for each other with the puppet to see if the other puppeteers in the room could figure out what we were trying to do. Just getting better at the notion of creating this mime-esque, clown-esque, physicalized performance within the frame and finding the nuances that that allowed the emotion that you wanted the audience to believe the character was experiencing to come across and it was just really fun and fascinating and used so many of the tools that i had already been able to obtain through my collegiate career you know silly voices and dialects and singing and um, and basic ideas of movement and basic ideas of composition and, and sculpture and all the things you need to know to get a general arts degree anyway are all literally working in concert to make this puppet thing work. So when I decided, because my experience in theater to that point had been predominantly musical theater, my resume was going to do better in New York than in L.A., uh, I hadn't had enough film or TV experience in my college years. So I aimed myself toward New York. Puppets at that point were just part of the toolkit. So when I arrived in New York, I was lucky enough that my father had worked with a guest artist, um, you know, as, as some professionals come into the collegiate world to do, you know, temporary contracts in, in either, you know, teaching a course or uh, being an artist in a specific way, like uh, teaching a painting class or being part of a, a collegiate production. He had kept in contact with with a very talented actor uh, named Robert Aberdeen and said, my kid's coming up there. Can you help him out? So he found me a roommate on the Equity, the Actors' Union uh, call board. Uh, somebody was looking for a roommate. I, I crashed at his place for the first week and just started trying to do it. Back then, backstage was a publication that you could find auditions in, and, and I and I went to a couple of auditions. And my first audition... Um, of note was for an equity showcase there's there's a specific contract in new york that's only available in new york that allows equity actors to be able to perform in a show that's not necessarily paying a living wage simply to be able to pursue their art and hopefully invite people who can move their career forward to see them in the production whether it's an agents or casting directors or managers or whatever new york's pretty much the only place that you can have that style of contract because it was a showcase that was open to more than just equity actors I auditioned they said oh it says here on your resume you build sets like yeah if we cast you would you be willing to build a set (laughs) (laughs) uh sure (laughs) so that's exactly what happened except it wasn't just build the set they said we have connections with the Juilliard school and they've been really nice they're their storage facilities right there on campus they said we can use some of that stuff so if, if you can go look at the stuff and see what you can use to design and build the set that would be great whoa <laughs> so i was like oh okay so i went to the juilliard school and i met the assistant shop coordinator and he took me into a room and it was just a bunch of platforms and a couple of flats and he said this is this is what you're allowed to use i was this and it was literally just, and if anybody knows carpentry out there, just literally two by four and two by six platforms, um, uh, meaning the, the the lumber. And then, you know, they were four feet by eight feet, some were two feet by six feet, and, and just a menagerie.
0: Like that, for theater people.
1: Yeah, yeah basically. Yeah. So I took, you know, I wrote everything down, what was there, and I designed a set that could function for all the scenes of this play that were. That was a kind of a montage of scenes about uh, AIDS, actually. So the the play wasn't didn't have a throughline narrative other than the connective tissue that that everyone involved had been touched in some way by the struggles uh, with the disease. So there was a, a a bar scene, there was a diner scene, there was a bedroom scene, there were all these different things, and it was a little studio theater. So I made this thing that could make everybody do what they needed to do. They'd pull out like, and kind of loosely based on one of my father's uh, scenic designs, actually, as far as the basic concept. Thanks. Brad. And uh, yeah, right. The Juilliard folks came to see it, and so after the after the production, they said, "Do you want a job?" <laughs> so my first day job was as a scenic carpenter for the Juilliard School for a couple of years while I pursued acting, which I, I kept going, and because of. One of the other actors in that very production is like, I know a group that would really like you. You should go see them. You sing? I was like, yeah, I sing okay. I said, yeah, you should go. I think, I think they'd like. That was the New York Gilbert and Sullivan Players, which is one of the only semi-professional um, operatic companies in the country. Definitely the only semi-professional Gilbert and Sullivan company. And they do full-on productions and tours around the world, but around the country. And that was my introduction to them. That wound up being a, a 10 year relationship where I wound up playing most of the comedic baritone roles in the GNS canon all over the world, which was a lot of fun over the time that I was also trying to do other stage work and New York Renaissance Festival back when it was an equity contract and you could actually make some money doing it, sent my tape to the Muppets. I called them up after I sent it and, and said, hey, I sent you a tape they were like, we get a lot of tapes. It'll be a while, thanks. And so I was like, oh, crap. Because then, it isn't the case anymore, but back then the Jim Henson Company cast all of their projects pretty much out of the same office. There was some New York stuff, some uh, stuff in the UK, but for the most part, the New York hub cast everything for the Muppets franchise, for the Sesame franchise, for any of the, the movie stuff they were building creatures for. It was pretty much out of that office. So uh, Renee Rochelle, who was the talent coordinator at that time, uh, she's like, yeah, I'm sorry, you know, we'll let you know. And I let that
0: sit for about a week. And I was like,
1: I can do this. Why aren't they looking at my tape? Just let- And I love
0: that about people in the performance neighborhood that they are proactive and they're not just putting food on the table. They're juggling jobs. Um, being a contract artist myself, even within the last year, I found myself working four jobs at the same time, doing all of the things that I loved, but it does require a bit of maintenance on your schedule and making sure that you're on your game, no matter what project that you're working on. Um, Something that uh, I'm fascinated by and I sort of adore, I hear it often when I talk to fellow artists, especially those who have been particularly successful in their career, like you have, Tyler, that they listen through play and when they get really good at it, people notice. And so when you were talking about your time building that ensemble group with puppetry, and learning monitor puppetry, and um, even moving into like your 10-year ensemble work with Gilbert and Sullivan like that, that was huge. But I think what they saw in you was that you were really good at listening through play, and that you were open to finding a new style. And so tell me a little bit about your specific style within whether you're doing Acting, um, acting through puppetry, acting through voiceover work, I, as you are getting into the skin of whatever character you were asked to play. Tell me a little bit about how you have developed a specific style over the years.
1: I actually can probably, that might be another thing that eeps back uh, 50% in part to OSU because uh, between the onset of my career there and, and when, when I had to, to leave, uh, there was a changeover. In the uh, theater department, there was a new acting teacher, Tracy Callahan was hired at that time. I had already been through basic acting with her predecessor. The theater department at large kind of made a requirement of like, look, this is the we're moving forward. We want everyone to be aligned with the new ideology. Could everyone please take basic acting again With, with Tracy so that we're all communicating in the same way? It made sense. So that means that my freshman year, I took basic acting. My sophomore year, again, I I took basic acting. Then I transferred schools, and the same exact thing happened. There for a year, acting teacher was on her way out. They hired somebody new. Same request was made.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: Four years of college, four basic acting courses with four different ideologies. Wow. Which, and it's something, I, I tell this story often, especially when I'm teaching to and talking to, to to younger performers or, or fresh performers about about improvisation and about how there's no right, there's no wrong, there's what works for you, there's no real rules, there's one of the best coaches I ever had, uh, Patrick Bristow, he talks about it, even though he hates sports, he talks about it in terms of batting averages, the notion that you're coming at it with with a a planned sort of understood skill set, but that's only if it serves in any given moment. That exposure to so many different ideologies to your catchphrase of of learning through play is exactly not only what I needed, but one of the reasons I think I've been fortunate enough to keep finding opportunities is, is that I'm open to what the new solution might be. I'm not always approaching it as this is what I did last time, this is what worked for me last time. What did I think about? How did I solve the problem last time? How can those same approaches to a solution work here as opposed to the same old, same old behavior or tropes? For me, the notion that, especially with the kids show stuff, every time I walk in to do something, I think about the fact that this may be the piece of material that is someone's introduction to this subject matter, to these characters. This may be the first episode of Sesame Street that this child has ever seen. What am I bringing to it that helps them understand what this world is, how the rules work, what the characters are as compared and contrasted to one another on top of whatever the curricular goals or the emotional goals of the content may be? What fresh thing am I bringing to this that tries to make it a moment that's never happened before. And I think having all that varied background with which to approach it is what has been able to help me keep that artistic ball rolling.
0: That is really something to hear the that part of your training connect. I have never talked to someone who has taken acting one four times. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was really bad. I just need, I mean, they kept telling me to quit, but I just couldn't yeah. do it.
0: Can we now have a new adage, the fourth time is the charm? Is that okay? (laughs) I would love to talk to you about your work and especially developing characters with Sesame Street. You brought up, if I'm coming into a character, and this might be a child's first time to see Sesame Street at all. And many of us have grown up with Sesame Street over the decades and such influence that that specific show has had. So let's talk a little bit about some of the characters that you are known for through Sesame Street, how you came through developing those things and what it's like to take some of those ideas and implement them into something that is going to be educational for children.
1: My kind of nom de gale uh, at, at Sesame for a while had been character guy, meaning... those characters that uh, the main characters had to bump up against during their pursuit of, of knowledge of any given subject. So, you know, game show hosts or sheep with a problem or occasionally the big bad wolf or talking vegetable or whatever it is, whatever it is that helped them learn something, what we call AMs, assistant Muppeteers, also anything Muppets, those characters that were created that were script specific. So my job would be to go in Look at the script, look at the other characters in the scene, figure out what the the curricular moment was that justified my character's existence, how to put that out in a way that that was memorable and easy to consume, and also fall within what I call the orchestral makeup of the scene, meaning the notes that each of the characters play respectively that are different from one another. How do I make sure that I'm not a brass and not a string instrument you know whatever it is if i'm if i'm the percussive thing or a woodwind so that i am blending with them as opposed to giving the same notes that one of them is or being in contrast unless that was what was called for so finding where the character needed to be in order to both uh you know pop and, and be just as impressive and just as memorable as the, the the famous characters that the kids were using used to seeing every week. But also not overshadowing the lessons that were typically theirs that they needed to reflect that, that they were absorbing, that the, the kid would learn through their eyes. And being able to do that consistently was one of the reasons I became a contract player at Sesame. I could always bring it, so to speak. Nowadays, it's more... The, the thought process, and that's one of the reasons that, that Sesame is so amazing, is that they're consistently examining the curricular impact and, and what kids are and aren't absorbing. And so much of how and what kids learn is about the medium from which it is being consumed. And that landscape changes so quickly that they're consistently molding the way the messaging and the way the curriculum is integrated into the narrative in in order to keep being the place kids want to go to learn something as well as being entertained so so being being that sort of intellectual playmate the information that kids get and the rate at which they get it changes consistently too all the screens that are around and and all the things that they can interact with now sesame's ideology about what used to be the informational expert about the the idea that there's an outside thing that has the information that they're going to learn about, whether it's, you know, Mr. Triangle or the Big Apple or whatever it is. Now it's more of an ownership of information and how how am I integrating into the world and how am I unique in my approach to this situation that's occurring? I'm ultimately reflecting on what it seems to me has been going on as different. Each year we have a different curricular aim that's that's given to us from the bright educational minds at sesame as to to what they're they're hoping to tackle next i can only speak to when i'm there and it's my job i'm noticing i'm fewer times recently being given a character specific goals and more narratively specific goals in in helping the main characters figure out what they need to figure out to translate the curricular goals
0: yeah So um, over your years, what has been, or who, I should say, because they've become like personas to you, who has been your favorite character to play?
1: Um, I was lucky enough to take over the role originated by uh, Mr. Bill Beretta, um, Elmo's father, Louis. Bill and uh, Kevin Clash, the just-past performer of Elmo. Uh, Now now he's performed by uh, the very talented Ryan Dillon. But Kevin... And the producers of what we call our outreach department at Sesame and Bill Beretta kind of combined minds about creating this this dad persona for Elmo's uh, life in order to translate some family specific ideology uh, that wasn't necessarily on the show proper, but is available materials for families going through specific trials, tribulations and support mechanisms for folks who are uh, either in the military or um, there are some folks who are dealing with a, a member of the family who's uh, incarcerated or having um, specific addiction problems, emotional problems. That, that's the, a wing of Sesame that helps create materials that assist families in maneuvering their way through those issues. Specifically, the military end of things, I believe, is, is where Louis made his first appearance with Bill um, portraying him. And I was lucky enough that when it became obvious that uh, Bill's uh, career and family life had him California-centered and the company needed a bit more availability to the character on the East Coast, that the recommendation was made that I take over the role. It's a fun fun character, and I've got to do some good things with him.
0: I love that your part of being curricularly involved is also a big part of what we call at OSU cultural literacy. So we understand who we are and the things around us within the context of culture. And so Louis is a character that helps kids to find themselves in a story, but also to learn about what's happening around them and to be able to navigate difficult things. So I love that your voice and your talent and your style is a part of that. That's so cool. So this brings us to the part of the conversation that I would love to ask you about because since we are talking about characters that function within like their own group or culture and you have had a wonderfully long career that has helped you to see people from all different places in the world and you've gotten to work with artists from all different places so sesame street has done over the years not just recently um, but over the years they have done a few projects that specifically wanted to talk about ethnicity and race and you as a performer, as a part of that group, have been able to be a part of that in some way or fashion. So tell me a little bit about how you've seen your work um, change or be more informed as Sesame Street and the other projects that you've worked on have also discussed the idea of race, specifically within the context of families.
1: There've been a couple of opportunities. I was also the the bird that that bullied Big Bird in one of the episodes. You jerk. I know. Right. Um, but that's, again, to your point, Sesame's consistently tried to tackle the the subject matter that uh, part of the current directive, making kids um, uh, stronger, smarter, smarter, kinder, informing children as to not necessarily a preferred state of being, but showing them that there's always a higher goal to achieve. There's always a place to reach. I was fortunate enough to, to be asked to be part of uh, the recent CNN town hall, uh, Sesame street, uh, cooperative effort uh, on the subject of racism uh, as, as Louie and introducing just the, the topic, just the definition of what racism, which I think we can all agree uh, is, is not a good thing. I don't think anybody says yay cancer. Right. Uh, I don't pretty confident that nobody says yay racism, Right. to be able to uh, illuminate a subject that may not be immediately communicated in a lot of children's homes, especially children who are in an insulated environment where they may have never heard it before. And then all of a sudden it's coming into their house on all of these screens and sound bites and fireworks outside and whatever it is that's introducing the topic to them. To be able to clearly represent the idea uh, in an absorbable way to start the conversation within households. A lot of people ha- have watched that scene between Elmo and his father. And I'm certainly proud to have been part of it and more than hopeful that it has begun a conversation about a subject that may have been rightfully taboo. but needs to be discussed nonetheless. So i um, very, very proud and consider that kind of the, the biggest thing I've done in my career so far.
0: Wow. I can't think of an accomplishment that bears a deeper influence that makes a more long-term impact than that. And it doesn't come with a trophy and an acceptance speech. But I personally want to thank you for your part in that. And that that was birthed a long time before the recent town hall. And so Sesame Street and your work for a very long time has been talking to kids in a very safe way about big issues, big problems. And so kids can easily get overwhelmed and not understand kind of the depth of what adults deal with. But to make it palatable, to make it safe, to make it empathetic, that's something that your work has inspired between parents and children. So those dining room table conversations, we as fellow parents, I have three kids myself, we say thank you for that, it's wonderful. That's exciting to know that the influence of your career has been so deeply impactful, but the legacy of your career will be deeply impactful for very long. So I count that as a dot, dot, dot. Lovely. There you go. Nice. Yes, yes.
1: I elliptically thank you.
0: Tyler I want to say thank you for spending this time with us today and thank you to all of our listeners as a quick reminder you can send ideas and feedback to us by emailing pokespodcast that's p-o-k-e-s-p-o-d-c-a-s all one word at okstate.edu that's pokespodcast at okstate.edu and with that, we will close with our regular final question. Tyler, how do you see the arts and sciences making the world a better place?
1: Well, right now, <laughs> one could even say uh, thank goodness for the distraction, because <laughs> with with uh, the particular climb in which we're recording this interview, if it's being seen decades from now... Um, you know the notion that we're in the middle of a pandemic and and a lot of folks are are spending more time at home than they ever have and the consistent onslaught of information to be able to get away uh, Netflix and not necessarily chill if we all get the reference uh, but we're we're binging whatever it is there's a lot of artists that are keeping you sane right now and then additionally those who are using their art to to help illuminate a lot of the unrest and and the thinking on the other side and the oh i, I never thought about this subject matter in that way before uh, the consistent kaleidoscope of angles that all of these artists are approaching the same material with that we're being confronted every day it's almost as gratifying to see people identifying with a different approach to a subject matter because of the way an artist was able to present it to them that a conversation never would have done, that that an angry post on Facebook never would have done. Oh, right. um, so now more than ever, I believe the arts are influencing the way people rethink things as much as um, holding a mirror up to the way they think about things.